So, you might have uh, remembered that I've been talking about 2023 being a year of discipleship. Last year, we focused on what it takes to have a culture of being a welcoming church. And uh, Cheryl told us, we're actually pretty nice. And uh, I appreciate knowing, hearing from uh, that perspective that uh, we are a welcoming church. We've still got things to work on and maybe systems to put in place, but uh, that's something that we paid attention to last year. This year, we want to focus on being a church that makes disciples, a culture of uh, helping people to, to learn to follow Jesus well. That idea, following Jesus, is really the fundamental basic principle of being a disciple. Uh, When Jesus called his disciples, what did he tell them to do? Follow me. First thing he said. And uh, if you look at the newsletter, which you can find at the welcome desk out uh, in the lobby, um, I've got a little article that talks a bit about discipleship and some of the things that we're going to be focusing on this year with that that mindset. And uh, so I'd encourage you to look at that. But Um, One of the things that, uh, in order to follow Jesus, one of the keys is spending time in His Word. If you're not listening to Jesus, how can you follow Him, right? So, spending time in the Bible is important. So, we're starting uh, a year-long series, not something I've ever done before. But the idea is we're going to look at uh, every, not every, the big characters in the, the, the family tree of Jesus, from Genesis and Adam all the way to, to when Jesus comes. So at the end of the year, we'd be talking about the Christmas story is kind of the idea. And up until then, you can trace the lineage of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, the last part of Luke 3. And so we're calling this series The Story. And each time, we, we're going to look at a new story. So I hope you like stories. We're going to have a lot of them this year. <laughs> um, and the elders are going to join me in, in telling some of these stories. So that's fun. But what I'd like to do is uh, invite you to read through the Bible with me. And so as we go through the, these major stories in the Bible, uh, you can have some context and read along with us. Uh, and so then I've created some, uh, or provided, I guess, some opportunities. I had more than one. Um, this is one example of a Bible reading plan. I've got three of them out there. This one is called Vertical. Uh, read, through the, read the Bible through in a year, and it's from the vertical prayer focus that the conference has. And it's just a book-by-book, check-off-the-chapter-as-you-read-it kind of plan. So very simple, from Genesis to Revelation. I've got another one out there that I kind of like because it ties the stories together. It's called a chronological reading plan. And the idea is you read from Genesis um, through to Revelation, but uh, when you get to, say, um, Samuel and Kings and you're reading about the story of David, um, you're going to read the story of David, and then you're going to read the Psalms that he wrote while he was in the caves of Machpelah or when after he uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba and the prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. So it kind of ties those together. And if there's a parallel story, like for instance, in Chronicles and Isaiah, you'll find the story of Hezekiah. You'll read those together. So that one's kind of fun. And then the third uh, Bible reading plan is the major stories plan. So if you feel like it's a daunting task to read through the Bible in a year, or maybe you want to read through with your kids, but you don't want to get um, all of the stuff in the, 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 the nitty-gritty details, um, that one's a good plan, about 160 readings, and it tells the major stories all through the Bible. So one way or the other, what I'd like to encourage you to do is read the Bible this year. We're going to study it in our sermons, you read it, and then 
you're bound to come up with a question or two, maybe even a doubt, like a what in the world did I just read? Um, Maybe sometimes it's going to be confusing because you read something here and it says something different there. Like for instance, it says that uh, Korah and his family all died when the when the, the, the dirt opened up and swallowed them. And just a few chapters later, it says that Korah's children didn't die. Um, so you're like, wait, what, what's happening here, right? And if you have some of those questions and you maybe don't have all the answers yourself and want to interact with some people, come on Wednesday nights at 6, and we're going to do a Bible Q&A session. And just a, a time to ask any question about the Bible, about church, about Christian life. Um, and you don't have to be in the same line as everybody else. If you're reading something different, maybe you're not reading through the Bible, you're focused on a different devotional plan, that's fine. Uh, but you still have some questions. Come and let's hang out. Let's, uh, let's answer some questions from the Bible. So I wanted to, to emphasize that discipleship is about following Jesus And following Jesus requires spending time in his word. And I'd like to invite all of you to spend time in God's word with me this year. So with that, the first story in our series is a story I'm calling Son of God. And when you hear those words, you probably are thinking about one particular character in the Bible. Uh, and that would be Jesus. Uh, but the, the Bible has, we're going to get to there in a minute, but the Bible has another guy it calls the Son of God. Governments for a long time have had representatives. They, they represent the people to the king or maybe to some other body of you know, lawmakers. And the ideal is that those people's concerns and needs and problems um, are introduced into the government system so that the government can help solve those problems. But not all governments have been very good at doing that. In fact, the uh, United States government got uh, one of its uh, pushes into independence from Britain because of taxation without representation. Britain was making laws about um, salt and about tea and about other trade kind of things and laws about taxes, and they, they couldn't represent themselves. And some of these laws were really detrimental to the colonies. And so they said, we can't have this anymore. No taxation without representation. And that pushed um, for us to have independence and then was kind of a, a, a cornerstone of our government. In fact, how our government is designed is based on representation. Uh, we have two bodies of legislators, people that make laws in our land. Uh, one is the Senate and the other is the, the um, uh, House of Representatives. And the House of Representatives is, more than any other thing in our government, um, what is supposed to represent you and me. Uh, so our country is divided up into all these little uh, congressional districts, and each district gets to vote for its own representative. And theoretically, you and I will find somebody who uh, has moral, uh, a good moral character, um, who shares some of our perspectives, and who has integrity. Hopefully, they're good um, diplomats and are capable of uh, diplomacy, and, uh, and we ask them to represent us. Now, it doesn't always work well, right? We know that. But uh, we ask them to represent us. And so, in a real way, you and I are in the legislature through our representative. My voice, your voice, my vote, your vote, it is encapsulated in our representative. 
So when our representative votes, you and I are voting. When our representative speaks, you and I are speaking. Sometimes, again, it's not perfect, sometimes they say things that we don't really like, and we wish they weren't our representative anymore, and that's why we get to vote for them every uh, few years. Uh, But that process is important. Now, some would suggest that an ideal government would be one where your voice and my voice are the voices that represent ourselves. But just think about how that might work. Can you imagine every single law that comes through our country about taxes, about trade, about um, whatever, immigration? Can you imagine every single person in the United States voting on every single issue? It would be logistically impossible, completely impossible. And then a consensus? No, you can't get consensus with a completely democratic system. And so uh, governments, uh, including ours, have done what is necessary in providing representation, a body of people represented by a single individual. So when you think about this idea of representation, I want you to take it, the government system, and, and kind of transfer that idea as we explore the Bible. And uh, let's turn to the first words of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, and the very first verse, and we're going to discover that the, the Bible begins with a representative government of sorts. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, the creator, is the government head in, in our world. He's the king. Um, the Bible describes him as the Lord of lords. He's the governmental head. Uh, but the next verse describes... Um, these fascinating things that, that God did. And it, I imagine it would have been thrilling to see. He speaks and something happens. Light and planets and stars, dirt, air, plants, animals, all these things appear. And then at the end of chapter one, the Bible describes him kneeling down. Well, I guess it's the beginning of chapter two. It describes him kneeling down and uh, forming a human In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says that uh, the Lord formed man from the dust uh, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. I want you to focus on that word man. What does that word mean? The word man in, in Hebrew is this word, Adam. And the word Adam, it doesn't mean male human. It just means human. At this point, when God makes Adam, there aren't any comparisons. There's no contrasts. He is it, everything. Whatever he is, that's what a human is, right? Um, and, and so it's not until we get uh, female that we get the, the, the contrast, male and female. He created them. But until we have female, it's just humanity. Adam is all of humanity at that moment. Now, we call him Adam, that's his name, his title, but really he's just the first human. And when we say Adam, that's all we're saying is human. Hey, human. <laughs> if we were to call out Adam, we'd be saying human. It, it, it kind of doesn't make sense, and probably, maybe, that's not what they called each other back then. But what's important, and why the Bible brings this up, and, and uses man and Adam interchangeably, both for his name and for his Um, species, is that it's wanting to point out the fact that Adam's the first of you and I. He's 
the first of all mankind. This verse, this word rather, is used 585 times in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. 585 times Adam is used. Only 10 times does it refer to Adam by a proper name. As in, like, this is this one guy, Adam. Twice it's about Adam, a city. Uh, But um, all the rest of the time, it's just humanity. Now, what I'm telling you is extremely important when we think about this idea of the Son of God and representation. See, Adam is the first Adam, the first human. And as the first human, he's our representative. We didn't get to vote for him. I understand, but he is the representative human for all of the human race. If he had continued without rebellion, Adam would still be the representative of the human race. God is the head of the government, and Adam is the representative of the race that he has just created. The first man was not born from a woman. He was formed by God's own hands. And so Luke, in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, describes him, and as it goes through this lineage, it says the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and Adam is the son of God. He's not the son of a woman or the son of uh, some other father. He is the son of God. You might be familiar with this phrase, son of God, in reference to Jesus, which we're going to get to in a moment, Uh, but I want to understand why. Why does son of God apply to Jesus? And we've had some confusion about, uh, well, is Jesus created because he's called the son of God, right? How does that work? I want to understand why, and in order to do that, we need to explore uh, Adam just a little bit more in the son of God phrase. Um, Look at Genesis chapter 126. In Genesis 1.26, God says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, Adam, he's the first one of us who has dominion. He's the first one made in the image of God, which makes him uh, kind of a two-way representative. He gets to represent humanity to God, but he also gets to represent God to all of humanity. He's the first father, right? His children will get to know God through him. So he is kind of a double representative in both directions. And when you think about this representation, when God says that you are in my image, there's a responsibility that Adam holds. And Adam failed, didn't he? He didn't succeed. He didn't succeed at representing God, and he didn't succeed at representing humanity very well. And and you find that this, especially representing God, uh, is something that the human race has been pretty bad at ever since Adam. In Genesis chapter 6, you you find these sons of God, and it says that the sons of God uh, saw the daughters of men and said, oh, they're beautiful, And they decided to marry them. And now we've got all kinds of ideas about what this means. But the simple explanation is that people who were supposed to represent God, people who called themselves God's children, uh, these were uh, the the sons of Seth and of Adam. And they saw 
the daughters of men, the, the, the daughters of wicked people who weren't representing God. And they said, they're beautiful, let's marry them. And, and instead of marrying in principle and following God, they married in, for pleasure and they followed their own delights. And what ended up as a result of this, the Bible says, is the, the hedonism and, and terrible environment right before the flood. The Bible says the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually. We failed to represent God well. Instead of following his image, we made ourselves in our own image. And then there's another situation where we see this representation, this son of God idea in Job chapter 1. And the story goes that there's a, a council of representatives in heaven that meets. It says the sons of God were meeting. And, and now that Adam has surrendered his, his authority to Satan uh, because he, he decided that he was going to disobey, now that he's done that, Satan kind of thinks of himself as a son of God, you know, the representative of the human race. How many of you would like Satan to represent us? Just raise your hand if you think that's a good idea. No votes for Satan. I'm proud of you. Good idea. So, but he thought that he was our representative. So he went to heaven. He went to this council. And uh, he, he says, uh, or God says to him, where did you come from? Uh, and he has this like, well, I came from wandering around my territory. <laughs> it's my, I'm, I'm the representative of this territory. And so God changes his focus. And there's the whole story of Job we won't get into today. Unfortunately, what we find is instead of Adam representing us in that council, Adam fails. Adam fails to represent us well. His choices, though, impact us. Now, 1 Timothy says something that's really important. In 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, it says, Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. That statement right there makes an impact. It should make an impact. See, Eve, she's deceived at the tree, but when she brings the fruit to Adam... We don't hear a lot about what happens there in that interaction. Adam's not exploring and checking out ideas and questioning and doubting. Adam, all we know is that he took the fruit and he ate it. Adam was not deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing when he chose to rebel. Now, what that tells us is that Adam voted. On our behalf, he voted. He made a vote against God. He represented us. And in representing us, he took us to death. He chose to disobey. Uh, You and I, from the future, might wish that we could call back and say, don't do it, Adam. That's going to be bad. It's going to really mess our lives up. Don't do it. But we can't do that. We don't get to vote for our representative. We don't get to comment on his choices. All we get to do is we're born into his heritage which can be kind of disappointing. His, his choice impacted all humankind. But isn't that also the case today? You and I make choices that impact others. The choices you made as a kid, uh, children pay attention as I say this, adults, the choices you made as, as a kid are impacting your kids today, aren't they? Yeah, and the choices that you make today are going to impact your grandkids, right? And, and, and that impact is not going to stop. 
We are dealing with the impact of choices that our grandparents and great-grandparents make. Some of us are here because uh, ancestors a century or or so ago, maybe more, decided that they would come to the New World, to North America. And so we're here. We live in the whole environment that we live in. Our culture, everything is determined by choices somebody else made a long time ago. Those choices of Adam, it makes sense. His choices affect us. Romans 5.19 makes sure that we understand, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Adam's choice impacts me and you. But look at that second half of the, 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 the sentence there. So by, uh, for by one man's disobedience, the many were made uh, sinners. So by one man's disobedience, rather, the many will be made righteous. That's the, the key that we need to be looking at. We've got a representative that fails us, but now that there's an introduction of something new, another representative maybe, because one man's obedience leads to the righteousness of many. Remember this representative idea. Is it possible there could be another representative? How would it be possible? Keep in mind that we're represented by Adam because we were all quite literally, physically in Adam. I don't want to be weird or anything, but, but Adam's sperm is where we all came from. We were all in Adam. I don't know if that's weird. I, I, I just want to be real, guys, Okay. Adam's choice affects us because he's our ancestor. So if he represents us by ancestry, without our choice, by birth, right? How is it that we could have another representative? Can you, can you choose your family? That's kind of a modern term right now, isn't it? You get to, you know, family of choice versus family of origin. Um, can we choose our family? Can we choose our ancestor, the one who represents us before God? Let's turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 35, because there's another son of God the Bible wants to point our attention to. The angel answered to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. Can you see it? Remember, Adam wasn't born of a woman. He was made by God's hands, and so the Bible calls him the Son of God. And Jesus, while he was born of a woman, and so we can call him a son of man, we can call him one of us. He is our brother, the Bible says. Yet he was also not born of a man. He was born of Mary and of the Holy Spirit. And so he is, like Adam, son of God. But John goes further, not just saying that he's son of God by birth, but he says that he was God from all eternity. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word right here he's talking about is Jesus, of course. So that Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. And notice this important point. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Let me just ask this question. If Jesus made everything, who made Adam? Jesus made Adam. The one who knelt there and formed Adam with his hands and gave him that divine kiss and breathed the breath of life into him, that's Jesus. 
So when the Bible says that Adam was the son of God, who is Adam the son of? Jesus. Okay? So how is it that we can have another representative of the human race? Let me tell you. You can't have another representative that's a son of Adam because Adam represented that son, and it's messed up from there. He represented us, made a bad choice, voted the wrong way, asked Satan to be his representative instead, and that was bad for everybody. And none of us can represent the human race. Do you get that? Make sense? Okay. So... If we're to have somebody to represent the human race, in whose image was Adam made? God's image. He's the son of God. He's made in God's image. Now, if one of his children couldn't represent us, what if we went the other way? Could his father represent the human race? And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus, the father of all mankind, came to be one with us. Not just our father, but our brother. And so now he's one with us and the creator of us all. And he can stand in the place of Adam and represent us. Adam to disobedience leading to death. Jesus, obedience leading to life. Look in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll spend a moment there. Jesus is our second Adam, you might say. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says, In Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then in verse 45, thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. He became a living being. But the second, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. He became, Adam became a living being that led us all to death. But Jesus... He chose to be incarnated, God in human flesh, to be a life-giving spirit. And that's what Jesus did. Everywhere he went, people were coming back to life. People were being healed. And he's trying to get us to to pay attention. He is the life-giver. He is the new representative of the human race. And I love how Paul says that he's the last Adam. He's not the second Adam with a third or fourth in line, depending on what happens here. No, he's the last Adam, the one sacrifice that ends them all, the the one perfect human that represents us all. There needs be no more. Jesus is the last. You are born a son or daughter of that first human, the first Adam. How do you get to be the son or daughter of, of the last Adam. You see that? Sometimes we talk about being born again and it's kind of this theoretical idea. Obviously, it was a little bit theoretical because when Jesus said it to Nicodemus, Nicodemus was like, what? Turn to John 3. John 3, verses 5 and 6. Now, he had just said, you got to be born again. And, and Nicodemus is like, are you saying I need to go back into my mother's womb? That's kind of confusing. And I think some of us wonder about that too. The spiritual idea of being born again is is a little bit strange. So Jesus clarifies it in John chapter 3. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Okay, Jesus, I want to be born again. How? How do you be born of water and the Spirit? Well, the water one is kind of a ceremonial thing. That's baptism. Um, but how, do you, how are you born of the Spirit? In John chapter 3, verse 13, he continues. 
He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Notice how Jesus identifies this direction. Our representation is both a representation of God to humanity and of humanity to God. That connection, the representative, stands between the two. Do you remember the the place in uh, the story of Jacob where he laid on that pillow of, of a rock and he dreamed the dream of a ladder that extended between heaven and earth and angels were ascending and descending on it? What does that ladder represent or who does that ladder represent? Jesus, the representative of the human race that stretches his hands between the two, between heaven and earth, between God and man, and connects the two of us. That is Jesus. And, and so Jesus comes down from heaven to represent God to us. And Jesus said at one point, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He represents God to the world. Uh, but not only that, he represents man to the Father. And so you find Jesus ascending into heaven after his death. He ascended to the right hand of the throne of God to represent humanity before God. Notice, let's keep reading there. Um, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. That, That word, that whoever believes in him, This is the pivotal transition between son of Adam or daughter of Adam and son of God or daughter of God. He who believes. We'll keep reading. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, how many times has it said believes in this? A bunch, right? Three or four already. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Uh, Now let's break this down a little bit. Think, Think about belief. Is it really true that you are a child of God? Just think about your lineage. It goes all the way back to Adam, right? And if Adam was a son of God, what does that make you and me? Children of God. But God doesn't force us to have allegiance to him. And and when Jesus comes, he's like, listen, guys, I'm the real deal. I'm the original. Adam got his start with me. So I can represent you. I'm real. You are my children, Why is it that you think Jesus said to the Pharisees when they said, we're children of Abraham, and and Jesus is like, I could make children of Abraham from these rocks. Why do you think he's able to say that? Because he's the father of Abraham. he He made Adam. And so from him, any new being he creates is in the same lineage. Is this making sense? We are the children of God, but God doesn't force us into allegiance. We are also the children of Adam, and we get to choose. Do we want to have Adam as our representative, or do we believe that Jesus is our creator God, has chosen us to be his children? And that's the pivotal transformation. When I believe, Lord, you are my God, you are my father, then he says, excellent, you're adopted, 
I'm going to adopt you back. In fact, the word that the Bible uses isn't adoption all the time. It often uses another word, redeem. You redeem something you lost. When you take your gun to the, to the um, pawn shop, please leave it there. No, I'm... <laughs> When you take your gun to the pawn shop and get a little bit of cash for it, right, so that you can, I don't know, do whatever, pay some bills, um, when you go back to the pawn shop, what do you do? You redeem it. That's what Jesus has done. We're already his. But we've been sold into sin. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate that. No. We've been sold into sin. And so Jesus comes, the father of Adam and the father of us, and he redeems us. He buys us back. And all we have to do is say, I believe. I believe that you are my Savior. In the Review and Herald, in the Review and Herald, um, Ellen White has this fascinating statement. Christ, the second Adam, came to a world polluted and marred to live a life of perfect obedience. Christ came to stand in the field of battle, in warfare against all of the satanic forces. By representing in his life the character of God, he sought to win man back to his allegiance, clothing his divinity with humanity that he might associate with fallen humanity. He sought to regain for man that which by disobedience Adam had lost for himself and for the world. In his own character, he displayed to the world the character of God. He pleased not himself, but went about doing good. His whole history for more than 30 years was one of pure disinterested benevolence. By his words, his influence, and his example, he made men feel that it was possible for them to return to their loyalty and be reinstated in God's favor. This second and last Son of God was lifted up on a cross so that anybody who turned to him would be able to live. They can turn from Adam, from sin, and believe in Jesus and be counted as dead to Adam's lineage and born again to Jesus's. As soon as you acknowledge him as Savior, as soon as you recognize him as representative, as your representative head, then his redemption, his adoption is complete. And, and the Bible tells us that um, we can be confident in God's power to save. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is God. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. You are in him, he says. And then he goes on. In him also you were circumcised. I, I, I made that awkward thing about uh, Adam and being in him, right? That, the Bible is just as awkward. I got it from the Bible. Uh, the, the point that the Bible is making every time it says that you are in Christ is the exact point I made about you being an Adam. You are in Christ. He is your representative head. So in him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You had the heart circumcision that was really needed. And then it says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power, powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You are in Christ. And every work that he did, 
you have done. Just like the work of sin that Adam did, his disobedience is passed down to you. Christ's righteousness covers over you. And he's legally able to do that because he is your representative head. In Acts chapter 17, verse 28, it says, For in him we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed his offspring. The question that you have to ask yourself is, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus came to be your representative? Do you believe that he lived a righteous life and died the death of judgment for sin? And that he was raised from the dead to sit in the throne of the government of the universe? If you do then you believe the gospel story. And if you do, Jesus promises that you are now his child and in him you have life. Our representatives on earth always mess things up. They don't don't do a good job. I guarantee it, you're going to be dissatisfied with politics. The more you dig into it, the worse it gets. Representation on earth is a failed concept. But Jesus is not a failure in representing us. He is always a success. And so Philippians 1.6 tells us we can have confidence. He says, I am sure of this. I am confident of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In Christ, you have life. If you believe in Jesus and rest in him, then your salvation is a done deal. It will happen. He's not going to mess this up. 